It's the 11th of February. It's time for the audio podcast, episode 84, which, if I remember correctly, is called Tape Forensics. Awesome. Yes. Yes. How are you, Adam Yanch? I am fine, Scott Hewitt. And how are you, Scott Hewitt? I'm very well, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> it's good to have you back, Adam. It's, uh, you know, it's audio podcast time. It's Monday. We are live in the YouTube Hangout. I'm a little bit off camera shot, really. Yay. Which is awesome. I'll just extreme close-up. <laughs> so I'll start like that. The giant headphones are taking a break today because I've had a. I've been wearing headphones all day, so I'm having less non-giant headphones, shall we say? Adam, a, uh, just before we head into the news. How was your Christmas? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. My Christmas was okay. It was very busy. I was moving a uh, kit, uh, audio studio kit, back and forth across the country. Uh, but um, th- there's something we were going to do last week, but unfortunately we got cut off, or I got cut off right near the end of the show, and you wrapped up. Um, and I was going to ask you if you've got anything musical for Christmas. And, uh, alas, I really didn't, actually. Anyways, this Christmas was a bumper Christmas for me, but not in a music tech way. Ah, uh, that's a But what did you get? Non- non-music? No, I got some bike lights. Well, that's important. That's, a, that's important stuff. Um, shall I tell you what I got? Yes, I and get... that would be music tech-orientated, which this would be far be, more this... relevant to our listeners. This will, this will <laughs> be music tech-orientated. And uh, I didn't get much, but what I did get was this. Oh, wow. Can you tell me what that is, Scott? That is that like, it? it's a Novation. Is it an NI24? No, no, no. Oh, man, I'm awesome. I, the, the quality isn't that good, though. I've had many, I've used a couple of those myself, actually. It's the same one that Graham Booth has. It's a Novation Nocturne. Oh, I was, yes, a Nocturne. I was so close. You're I was close. right with Novation. Yeah. And but, you know what, I've, I, I, at first I was like, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure if I'll use it. But then I plugged it into Logic and set up some of the, you know, set up some of my own maps, my custom mm. maps for some of the effects. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. This completely kicks ass over the, using the keyboard and the mouse. So, uh, yeah, good, uh, a, a good little present, that, to uh, the Novation Nocturne for Christmas. Yahoo! That's awesome, and they tour well. You're right. Uh, we I know a couple of people who have them, and they've always been very good servants. So that's uh, yes, yeah, so they're very solid. Uh, they've got nice grippy feet, and I've got very slippy desks, so very solid there. And uh, yeah, excellent stuff. Anyway, let's get on with the show. So um, to, to start with, we are new. We are kind of hardware oriented. We got bits of hardware this week. Um, let's go straight into it. A, a workhorse of mine that I've used for many years, and I've spoken about it a few times on the show, but Behringer have released, are releasing a new ADA 8000, the ADA 8200. Or 8200. 8200. If you're American. Yeah, I mean, out of the blue, um, at least for me, I wouldn't have ever expected them to release a new version, but... If you head to our show notes, which are, which are at the audiopodcast.co.uk forward slash show forward slash 84, you can get links through to all of the things we're going to mention today, but particularly the ADA 8200. Um, and if you go to the website, you can see that uh, lovely in red, they've, they've changed the color scheme from silver to red, and they've yep. whacked in some... Uh, 
Midas designed preamps. Yeah, so for anybody who doesn't know, the, the 8800s actually were fairly unique devices because essentially what they are is ADAT breakouts. They, you know, eight analog to digital converters, eight digital to analog converters with, you know, ADAT light pipe inside them. And for the price, I'm saying you're always looking around £100 for them. They were, n nothing could touch them. So they were just incredible value for money. And also a, a really cool little trick you could do with it if you wanted to was at the compromise of a little bit more latency, you could take the ADAT out of it and then put it straight back into it as well, in which case it would give you eight preamps in a 1U rack, which also, bizarrely, it was incredibly competitive as, as, a, as a unit. You know, eight, eight, preamps, eight preamps for £100 in a 1U rack is... You, you don't get a lot of options at that sort of price point for that kind of thing. So, well, that's true. I think the, the ADA 8000 was like the... It was the... The cheapest one you could get away with, but it was very solid for what it was. Um, I think the the uh, the loop back of the ADAT cable could be seen as a flaw. Like you should be able to just run. Why can't you just run the inputs through to the outputs electronically? But oh, whatever. We well, you know, for eight preamps, all you need is an extra cable, an ADAT cable, plug it in. That's fine. Now. Uh, it's hard to tell, apart from these Midas-designed preamps, it's hard to tell what is different about the new model and the red paint, of course. Um, it's still eight, uh, eight channels. Um, yep. It's still I, XLR in, XLR out. I, it, I don't think it, there is any difference. I, yeah, apart from the preamps. It's still the, the, one, the one caveat, of course, is to remember that it, it tops out at 48 kilohertz. So um, yep. it doesn't use SMUX2 or SMUX4 to give you higher sampling rates uh, at the expense of track numbers at track count. But, uh, you know, if you're gonna, ha if you're happy to run at 48 uh, kilohertz, then you've got yourself eight solid preamps, and they'll be better preamps, most likely, for a small price, relatively. Oh, yeah. well, pricing won't, won't, hasn't been confirmed yet, because this is all kind of NAM and you know, NAM announced sort of post stuff that we're looking at here, but it, it is like that. The other thing that I say to people on the quality side of this is that, you know, let's be honest about it, you know, it's the Behringer preamps, they're not exactly going to set the world on fire, but then if you're running if you're running a whole set of like, you know, SM58s or something like that, then this isn't a, it's a good match in terms of specification and capabilities. Mm. You know, you, like that that's the way to look at this. I've always, I've always said that. If you, if you're in a situation where you, you know, you, you have a mixer which doesn't have enough kind of, you know, preamp channels on it, or perhaps you have a sound card which has, you know, kind of balanced inputs but not preamp, but but no preamps on the channels, then this is an ideal way to get, you know, get the extra preamps in an, in an affordable box. And unless you're, you know, for most people's kind of standard microphone use, it's going to be more, it's going to be more than adequate, and it's certainly going to be better than nothing, so... Yes, and and if you think it's cheaper than a desk, as well. Well, yeah. So overall, a, a, a decent idea if you need to expand via your ADAP ports. Interestingly, um, that was a that was the Behringer ADA eighty two hundred. We're going to move on to another Behringer product. We don't usually cascade things like like that, but uh, there's a new version of the X thirty two mixing desk. In fact, I think there are two if you look at the website, but we're going to focus on just one 
called the X32 Producer. Yeah, so this is obviously um, building on the, the X32 that Behringer have released, which has been you know setting the world on fire in terms of kind of digital desks recently. And this is, you know, a a smaller version of it. And to be honest, like when whenever I'm teaching digital desks to people, which I, you know, I I, I do as a, as I think most of our listeners would know, I spent I do a lot of education work. That um, I always say to people that you should view digital desks as being bits. You know, it's like you've got the analog to digital converter, you've got the digital to analog converter for getting in and out. You have the DSP processing, and then you have the interface control. You know, the actual interface on top of that as well. So it's you know. Mm-hmm. They're four bits. And this is exactly the kind of thing that it's exciting to see Behringer doing this because they've obviously taken the what was the X32 and now they're playing with the interface. You know, they're playing with the, the parts of it. So you start, you know, yeah. here's a new interface to something built. And that's something that's always frustrated me about lots of the other, the other manufacturers is that they never have been willing to start to, you know, to, to, to change the interface elements or to, to kind of play around with that stuff, they tend to just produce the phys- you know, here's a thing and it's done. Like, as an example, I've, I, you know, for years I've been thinking how awesome it would have been if Yamaha had released an O1V in a rack. Could you imagine like a 4U rack O1V? Like a, a small kind of compact thing that's just rack mountable. It would have been, you know, an incredibly useful piece of kit for years. Never happened, but, you know, it's good to see that Behringer has started kind of exploring different interfaces. So, this is pitched as being well. I, I picked up on the text here, isn't it? But it's um, you know, why do we call it the producer? A producer is someone who lives life on the go. Well, this isn't a uh, th- th- this is a mobile piece of kit if you've got a car, but it's, <laughs> it's not yes. it, you know. It, it's uh, as in it's rack mountable where the old X32 wasn't. So it's it's been narrowed. Um, the concession that you have to make in that transition in size is that you go from 32 mic preamps that are on the X32 to 16 mic preamps. However, the desk will still do the same number of channels overall. It's yeah. still, what was it, 40? Um, I had it up here. 40 input, 40 25, input yeah. 25 bus. And very likely we'll have all of the same innards all of the same capabilities is just lacking those extra 16 preamps. And you know, you know what product Scott could actually be used to get those 16 preamps back up. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder too. Indeed. We should have done them the other way around and then we could have had that lovely link in, you see? Well, perhaps we, perhaps we could have done sort of stuff. I've I've had uh, a, I've, I've had a player for next 32 actually. And I was quite surprised. I was quite pleasantly surprised in terms of, it's yeah it was okay i'm saying it it definitely if you if you know something like an ls9 you'll you'll probably be quite you'll be very you'll be satisfied with it quite happy. i think if you're used to you know one of the bigger yamaha tascam desks then you're probably you and if actually i'll, I'll start that again if you do a lot of advanced <laughs> routing if you do a lot of advanced routing or kind of really advanced technical use and you're used to working with one of say the you know, like a, a kind of full spec kind of top top line Yamaha or Tascam desk, then you're going to be a little bit. You might, you'll probably hit the boundaries of what you can do with this. But if you're more from LS9 O1V sort of territory, even O2R territory, then you're going to find this as perfect. You know, you're not well, going to hit I problems. I mean, you can't really you can't really compare an X32 to something like uh, the the upper end Yamaha desks because this hmm. the X32 is what two grand. Yeah, um, I, how, do, do we have prices for the 
uh, producer? No, not yet. No, I, I did query for some pricing, but they haven't got back to me with it. So, the other thing to note is if you look on the Behringer uh, products page, is you have um, the the Digital Mixer X32 producer, but there's also a compact version of the X32, which I think takes similar cues from the producer version, but I imagine has they've swapped around the interfaces. Like you say, it's like a kind of modular thing, and they've decided well, yeah, to so make you... a smaller version of the live desk and this new producer model. Well, you also see them saying like the, 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 you know, the X32 core is there as well, which is basically the, the unit in a rack. Is also is also available, and I I think that's this is one new rack. Oh, that's nice. Well, yeah, because remember they they have the iPad that they have the tablet based app to drive it already. So mm. you know, I mean, if you there, there are lots of lots and lots of uses for this kind of stuff. I'm saying it from my point of view. What's really exciting is you you could easily kind of conceive of a situation where you could have you know maybe an eight U flight case, and in there have you know in there have the mixer, multi-track, you know. Preamps, mixer, multi-track, multi-track recording, and be able to go and do a big show, make a recording of it, and come back with something that you can, you know, a single flight case that you could just kind of bounce in and out of a, you know, in out in and out of a van, or maybe even just tip onto its side and put it in the back of a car. It's quite, mm. I think that's quite exciting, really, as a, you know, as so, as an option. So basically, thumbs up to Behringer. I uh, got some awesome-looking products in the pipeline, and. I don't know, maybe one day we'll come back and fill in the gaps on things like prices and any other news on the Behringer front. Absolutely I, think we should, so. I think we should move on now, Scott. And uh, we go back into classic audio podcast territory. Uh, don't forget, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at The Audio Podcast, and you can follow our show notes at uh, theaudiopodcast.co.uk, as I said before. Um, all of our show notes are there. 84 shows so you can go back into the annals of time and see how the show has evolved um, but uh, if you do that and you go back through the archive you'll find that the uh, presenters here on the audio podcast do enjoy a bit of a, uh, a sound library now and then a, a quirky sound library you know uh, like uh, someone hitting uh, like sports equipment baseball bats you know that kind of thing we haven't actually had that but uh, that would be an awesome sound library for the future it went indeed. So uh, today's, uh, this week's sound library of uh, of interest, shall we say, is trains. There we go. Yeah, that was go. me. That wasn't from the sound library. No, no, definitely not. So uh, <laughs> Boom Boom Library have released a uh, sound file of trains. They are uh, either available as stereo or 5.5.0 surround recordings. Um, you know, 96k 24-bit waves, and every train, you know. All kinds of train you could imagine, train braking noises, hydraulics, you know, just all those all those good train action sounds. I've got a couple of questions for you, Scott. Yes. First, does it include things like um, like points changing, like things that are train infrastructure but not trains? And I think it was more just trains. Maybe that'll be an add-on pack. And another question is, where yes. was it recorded? Which country was it recorded in? I believe I, I'm guessing it's American, but that is just me guessing there for you. Mm. I think it'll be interesting to compare train sounds across countries because they have different 
infrastructures and everything. But anyway, let's not dwell on that because that's not really audio. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, so there's that's a, available. That's yeah, available. Uh, 500 plus files available now. Trains are cool. That's all we need to know about it. <laughs> of course, loves me, trains. Me, me and Scott use trains regularly, so we're going to say that. We're, we're big train fans. Talking about uh, technologies that have been replaced but continue to be continue to thrive or not, um, I two stories I was reading off the Calrec blog this week and two stories that were in line with them and they hadn't put them together but for me it really worked together quite well. Uh, they were first of all pointing out the fact the Sony has announced the demise of Minidisc. Um, mm-hmm. I put a link of for BBC in there. It is like 93 or something, isn't it? 93, 92? 90, yeah, what, what it was, was um, there was actually a format war between the Minidisc, um, which was Sony, and um, Philips, who made something called the Digital Compact Cassette, which was basically exactly a compact cassette-shaped doohickey, but it was digital instead of being analog. Um, yep. And they had a bit of a face-off, it's safe to say that Minidisc won in that war, in that battle, but Minidisc didn't win the war because uh, the MP3 came along and, and trounced Minidisc. Though, you and I, Scott, we probably have... I have good memories of Minidisc. I used to make Minidiscs, like, compilations, and we used to use them recording-wise because they were cheap to buy the recorders and the microphones and really easy to get well, around. They were eventually cheap, weren't they? There's a couple of key features there. I'm saying, first of all, the the mini disc recorders came with the capability to run powered microphones, didn't they? So you could run powered capacitors, and Sony like made Sony and a few other people made microphones particularly for that use, which really set them aside from everything else that was available. And obviously, by their later stages, by the 2000s, they had got to small, you know, small kind of sizes. But mm. I I don't I'd forgotten how expensive it was at the start. You know they they were just so expensive, in in terms of you know you were looking at five hundred pounds and this is CDs exist by this point so it's you know <laughs> it's something physically smaller but of a lower quality than a CD, and but then, then you had to you know but then the, for five hundred pounds it was a, probably a tall order wasn't it? Uh, well yeah but all formats start expensive when I got into it at around ninety nine two thousand time they were much cheaper. But, mm. of course, there was a benefit of, of Minidisc that you could uh, change what was on the disc. You could actually wipe things and put new things on and reuse your discs. They were like tapes, that, whereas CDs were really yeah. fixed. And CDRs weren't used as much as a, as a way of, of sharing music. They were kind of for a bit, but uh, I think Minidisc had a really nice little go at it for a while. Yeah. This was a story, actually, that I thought we should have covered last week, but I forgot to mention it. So, uh, Well, yes. No, it should it should, it should, should have popped up as that went through. I, I, I agree as well. I now, think the what's, other, the, what's the other story? Well, the other attachment to it was, it just don't... It was something else that I followed, but um, the, it, it, the remark I just wanted to make was the fact that, well, these, you know, well, I was worried that somebody would be collapsing right now, devastated at the news that Minidisc was no more. <laughs> When when I say it's no more Sony, the last mini disc Sony, the last mini disc player that Sony are going to sell will be sold in March, basically, and that's it. They won't be as of April. You won't be able to buy a new mini disc player from Sony. So it's relative whether this actually counts as it dying or not. But you know what I mean. But um, the point I was just making is that obviously vinyl was also meant to have died and continues on quite happily. 
that was also meant to have died and continues on quite happily. And I was amazed to discover that I, I found a news article which cited the fact that cassette use actually went up in 2011. Now I can that that's not strange to me because um some of the music that I have been listening to for the last eighteen months you can kind of see that that some of the some bands are actually releasing proper like tapes they're actually getting mm. tapes made up and I think it's a I don't know if it's completely because tape technology is really cheap because no one wants it anymore that's probably something to do with it but there's also the the social kind of uh, side of it, you know, w- w- what's important about the tape? Why is cassette tape significant as a medium on its own in yeah. relation to other things? But I'm not surprised at all. I've got a couple of of cassettes recently from people. I don't listen to them because I don't have a tape machine. But I got the digital <laughs> download, and I got and I got the tape because I just thought, oh, that'd be fun. Let's just do that. But it's not surprising, I suppose. You're going to make the link that. Um, Mini disc could have the same thing. Yeah, it, it could well do. For people who had no first-hand experience of tape, I'll just point out one of the most useful pieces of equipment you'll ever see. <laughs> for, our, for our audio-only listeners, that is a pencil. pencil. <laughs> there you that, go. Uh, it has to be. It has to be a hexagonal pe- pencil. Yes, no, that, that is a there. It is. It is a hex. Can you see that? That's one of those classic red and black pencils that uh, are really kind of. High end. They're not your typical. Good talk. You get good talk on that, which is what you're looking for. That the high end pencil talk. There we go. If you don't know why you would use that in a tape, then there you go. Don't don't get a tape. No. Don't get a tape. No. The number of times I used a pencil on a tape was very very few. No, that's true. But (laughs) you know, I. It's funny how technologies how technologies live beyond and find niche uses, isn't it? I, to be honest, there, there is no part of me which which looks back on the days of cassette tape with any sense of nostalgia. I just remember it being horrible quality. You you, you know, your tape got chewed up at the most in, inopportune moment possible. You, you know, you would have to carry handfuls of batteries around because obviously your little kind of Walkman was running, you know, was was running physical motors, so they ran out of batteries. You know, it wasn't like you got weeks out of, you know, you didn't get a lot of time out of them, really. It just, no. There's, there's no part uh, of me which thinks, I, I, well, I that was great. I nice memories. I, I think back to all of the compilation tapes I made and going to college on the bus with my with my Walkman and my uh, and my compilations, yeah. and then I upgraded to Minidisc and sha-sha-sha. But but yeah, we'll we'll see how many discs get on there. I, I wonder if mini discs might be a little bit the actual players might be a bit too delicate because they're very very intricate. And also, there wasn't a lot yeah. of uh, you don't see mini discs in a charity shop. That's another thing. Well, I, that I do wonder. I, I I always have this memory of if you were buying music that the CD was always a lot cheaper than the mini disc. Yeah. Like it got to the point where the CD was a lot cheaper than mini disc by like maybe a, maybe 10 pounds at, at least if not more but then in addition to that the CD was actually obviously a higher quality one anyway so it was yeah. Well, you know what I mean and the, and then the Sony the... Sony kind of piled in a whole load of that tech a whole load of that kind of DRM tech onto it as well at times so you couldn't you know there, there were you know I always remember every time you try to do something for mini disc, you would try and do something that seemed perfectly reasonable, and then discover it didn't work because 
Sony had decided you should never be allowed to do that or whatever. You know. Well, I think mini disc as a as a professional consumer standard is silly, but I I think that it as a replacement for tape for recording mm-hmm. stuff or for making your own mixes was great. That was where yeah. mini disc was great. So uh, let's show, let's move on. Cause we talked about that. Quite Indeed, one one of the places I used mini disc and tape the most was when I was on a journey. And while we've discussed trains already, it may well have been that journey was on a plane. <laughs> and just as a little bit of passing courtesy news, there have been some changes to the uh, to guidelines and the rules about flying with instruments. So if you fly with an instrument often, then you want to go to our show notes, uh, theaudiopodcast.co.uk slash show slash 84, and go and have a look there, and it'll pass you through to the link, and that will tell you how the instrument rules have changed. Link-tastic. Indeed so. Shall we, shall we move on again? Yes. Ooh. Awesome. Oh, what's next? I, I hadn't looked what was next. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's the oh, baby yes. got back analysis. Baby got back analysis. So yeah. this is... I guess I should take a lead on this. So I guess this is our final item, and this is an interesting... Um, it, it's interesting for a variety of reasons. So the main reason I put this in here... Well, a, a bit of backstory, first of all. There's a gentleman called a, Jonathan Colton, who you may know as being the guy who wrote Code Monkey. I, I think a lot of our audience is probably quite geeky, so they're probably going to pick that reference. That reference is probably going to work. He also did a, a song a day for a year, he like this massive kind of output. I think it was a song a day for a year, definitely a song a week or something like that. It was this kind of big thing. He went from being a professional programmer to a musician. He is now a kind of touring, gigging musician. That's what he does. And um, he has a, I think it's fair to say, a fanatical fan base. But this fan base is quite geeky. He writes songs about you know programming and things like that. It's part of what part of what yeah. he does. I do that. Maybe not programming, but. Yes. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. So <laughs> what what he what he did was he made a he he made a acoustic version of Baby Got Back, which I'm right in thinking is Sir Mix a Lot. Is that Sir Mix a Lot? Yeah. He so he made an acoustic version. He made an acoustic version of this. Did a did a basically insignificant release. Got got the appropriate clearance in place, and you know did this. And as part of his process, he tends to release the kind of session files to, so people could do remixes of, remixes of for themselves and also karaoke tracks and such. So he made this arrangement of it. The arrangement is radically different to the original, completely reorchestrated with various things, and includes a duck quack. Quack. This quack will become, will become more significant in a moment. So, <laughs> good, so good. Glee, the, uh, the, the, the show about, you know, show choirs, which you may or may not have seen, uh, I suppose is responsible for the fact we all now know the beginning of um, Don't Stop Believing My Journey is probably its main contribution to society, I would suggest. Are you a, fan? Um, Are you a fan of Glee, Scott? I, of the earlier seasons, I did kind of enjoy it, actually. I will confess that. But they... Now, whether they ever actually did it as a on the TV or not, nobody seems to know, and it would have happened as a fairly recent episode if they had. But nonetheless, the Glee cast ended up releasing a recording of Baby Got Back, which, fair enough, they're friendly, you know, obviously would make sense for them to do that, you see. But the interesting thing is this was an arrangement which sounds suspiciously similar to, um, to the Jonathan Colton arrangement of it. And when I mean suspiciously similar, it's, you know, you, you could listen to one in either ear and notice, you know, there'd be no problems, shall we say. They would play along quite happily with two different people singing to it. 
So, you remember these uh, geeky fans? Like, geeky in a very positive way, by the way. These geeky fans I was referring to. So, um, on the uh, geeklikeme2.blogspot.ca, uh, on a web- website here, one of the fans has done a forensic audio analysis of the two tracks, side by side, and established that... Um, how, how can I put this? Replicated the methods that may have been used to remove Jonathan Colton's vocal line from the recording and allow you to put somebody else's vocal part over the top of that recording. Um, in doing so, also identified the fact that you would need to re-record the bass parts, because um, by doing a mono, a left-right, cance- a left-right mono summative cancellation is essentially what he did. Um, but by doing that, you also kill off the bass, which tends to be centre-mixed for you know frequency driver concerns. So you need to put a new bass part on, as has occurred. And also discovered that the aforementioned quack remains. And indeed, if you listen back to the Glee version of the track, you will discover at a rather obscure and random moment, a quack appears in the background, identically to the mm. John Bolton version. Now, so, so hold on, can I, can I just stop you there, Scott? Yes. Are, are, you suggesting, are you suggesting that the people who made Glee actually took his version and, and, and appropriated it uh, and used it in Glee w- without attribution and without um, payment and all this kind of stuff. Here on the audio podcast, we cast no aspersions and accuse nobody of any wrong. However, if you, the listener, wanted to, you could uh, go to our show notes, check out the links, hear the audio examples, even if you wish to follow the instructions, which you, you could easily do the modifications required in Audacity if you want to, like free editor, Follow the instructions detailed in the analysis and come to your own informed conclusions. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So uh, anyway, but you can read about it. John, um, I put in the links, the link to the audio analysis and the kind of detail about it. It's it's quite an interesting read. I'd recommend it, especially if you're, you know, if you've ever wanted to remove the vocal line of a track because you want to turn it into a karaoke track. This is it does detail a very a method that's quite common for doing that. So you might be interested in that. Um, there's also Jonathan Colton's response to the whole situation, which is quite, you know, I thought was quite positive. Um, it's quite positive and quite interesting. And also up on SoundCloud, I found a copy. I found somebody's done a mix of Jonathan Colton in one ear and Glee in another ear. So if you want to listen to them on headphones and see what you think the differences are between them, and see if you can listen out to the all important quack, then you could uh, feel free to do that as well. So there you go. There you go. There you go. So had, had you listened to it. Um, well, you can head to theaudiopodcast.co.uk forward slash show forward slash 84 and head down to the last news item, which is Baby Got Back Analysis. Oh, what was that? What did I just say? Did I say the last news item? That can only mean one thing, Scott. Du, du, du. It's plunder. plunder. So in, in the plunder time, just a single item of plunder here. I wonder if we've mentioned this before, but I couldn't I couldn't work out if we had, so I decided it didn't matter. But sure, um, on the Sure blog, they've been doing a lot of home recording technique recently, and I found the li- I I happened to come across their discussion about microphones and how microphones work and how you differentiate microphone pickup patterns. So this is part of a series on home recording, which is quite interesting actually. But it felt appropriate to link to the microphone one with it being Sure, obviously a microphone company, isn't it? So. Well, yes, but they also make headphones. They they make quite a few things, don't they? But I was, you know, when kind I like think of Yamaha. Sure, I always think 
you know, when I think of Shearer, I always think of 58s, 55s, uh, 50, yeah, 58, 55, 57s, so hence. You see, the thing is that when I think of Yamaha, I actually think of uh, motorbikes, and nah, I, I probably do think of motorbikes, but, you know, the, o, uh, the O2R, the O2R, the O1V, you know, they're there too. Do you, do you think of jet skis as well? No. Do they do jet skis? Yeah, they do jet skis. I suppose skis, a jet ski is just like a motorbike on water, so it makes sense. You know what I mean? It's, of course they. Guitars, jet skis, it's all, you know. And, of course, you can't forget that Korg were owned by Yamaha for a while. Mm. Mm. Very true. That is very true. Very true indeed. That's got nothing well, to do with anything, but I thought I'd just put it in and show how geeky I am. You know, I I'm, I just, 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 uh, Adam, just, uh, j- just, just. Keep rolling. Just also, yeah, just want to, oh, it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> That's good, because I probably would have started talking about workstations at that point. No, I, I just I had a moment that just flashed in my head, but it's it's okay. It's not a it's not a concern. With that okay. though, we have made it to the end of the show notes, which is, means it's the end of the show. No, hey, but I made it all the way through this time, and that was indeed awesome, indeed yeah. awesome. So, Adam Yanch, thank you very much. It's it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I you know I am I am Scott Hewitt, so that that's been fun for me as well. This and is the audio. Oh, sorry, Adam. And, and I'm Adam Yanch, and thank you, Scott, for having me on again. Hope to Yay. be on next week, too. Awesome stuff. Well, this has been the audio podcast, episode 84, which is uh, Tape Forensics. Tape Forensics. See you later. Bye. Bye.